Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education, and it is 420 everywhere. My name is Keisha. I'll be co-moderating today. I'm not alone. What's up, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. How's it going? We're here for episode 420. I mean, episode 62. Y'all know we're going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll get those over to the team. If you're active on social media, make sure you're following us on all of the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. And big announcement, we have a giveaway going on over on our, our, on our Instagram right now. So have you heard about our partnership with Freedom Grams and Last Prisoner Project? Well, you can actually learn a lot about them and help them out today with our giveaway. So learn more over on our Instagram for all of that. But let's get right to the show. I'm going to throw it back to you, Keisha. Fantastic, Mandy. Thank you so much. All right. If you're live with us here and you have a question, type it anytime in the chat. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or I can ask for you. Seth and Jason are in the house today. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Pretty good. Good. My first question comes from me. What do you think of my homegrown flower? Look at that. Looks like you haven't been smoking enough of it. <laughs> I haven't. No, this is just one of the jars. This is Looking just nice. one. I haven't even cracked this one open. Okay, yeah. VPD and the water content and everything is just perfect. We'll, we'll get the judging criteria. Oh, yes. Okay. Really, really nail it down. <laughs> that Excellent. All right. You guys ready for like an actual like real question? All right. We got this right in from Clark. He's just curious on, steer, on steering. Is it true that a generative steer, which is watering two hours after sunrise, would reduce stretch, but would put on less bud sites? Or how does that grow? Or sorry, how does that go? Yeah, so I mean, regardless of generative or vegetative, uh, I usually like to recommend irrigating for the first time one to two hours after lights on. So um, usually when we're talking about generative, it's just from first irrigation to last irrigation how big is that window um we call it generative stacking because you should be stacking bud sites so should be doing a couple things one is reducing how quickly um, that plant is vertically stretching and that means your node spacing is going to be a little bit tighter and you actually should get a few more nodes yeah one of the key things i've seen people struggle with especially with available information out there is looking at saying hey i'm going to start my generative steer um we're going to start two hours after lights on, but we're going to wait, let's say 45 minutes between waterings and put on six waterings. Well, effectively we've taken our irrigation window out to longer than two hours. And that is a big factor in what actually dictates like a generative versus vegetative steer. With vegetative, we have more and more shots throughout the day. But one of the big things is that 22 hour or the maximum amount of dryback time we can give it without putting more shots on. So 100% it is true. If you execute a generative steer compared to a vegetative steer on the same strain, you're going to end up with a shorter plant with more nodes on it. Uh, that being said, you want to really define what that generative steer is and not just say, hey, I'm going two hours after lights on versus, you know, watering, let's say, six, six evenly spaced times a day starting at two hours after lights on. Um, as, as of yet, I have yet to see a situation where a true generative steer doesn't help a plant shorten up and produce more bud sites. And, you know, a great way, if you really want to prove this to yourself, go, go, go right back to your basement or your garage and get a five-gallon pot and put it right next to a one-gallon pot and flip the same size plant in it and then water as needed. You'll, you'll see a huge difference in morphology between the two plants, and that's a great, you know, visual representation of what's going on there. Awesome. Great overview. Thank you guys. We love overviews over here. All right. Happy 420, everybody. If you're on with us live, today's the day. Good. Let's get some uh, questions answered. All right. Dave Ray wrote in looking for tips to increase density. He's wondering, should we shorten the bulk stage? Um, increasing density, shorting the bulk stage. Probably not. I mean, uh, maybe if you're Decreasing it with already too short of a, a generative steer in there, 
than, than probably, um, you know, bulk stage is going to be filling out the bud sites that have already been created from that generative steering. And so you should be seeing the canopy fill out pretty damn well throughout that, um, that bulking session. And, you know, that being said, sometimes strains are just not big enough for the plant spacing that are in the room. So, um, really trying to understand, right. What is the optimal spacing for this cultivar recording it and running off that, um, while you're modulating some of the crop steering to also optimize that, that plant size is probably the best route there. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe what this guy's getting at is, uh, actual bud density, not canopy density. Ah. Um, and if we're talking about actual bud density, you know, there's a few things you want to look at. Number one is timing your, uh, irrigation strategy switches, right? Like we generally say three weeks, 21 days is a pretty average time. Most strains stretch, right? Well, if we have a strain that does happen to stretch for four, four and a half weeks, you know, 28 plus days, if we go into bulking too early, that's going to encourage stretching inside of the stalk of the flower. So we're going to get stretching in between our individual bracts and loosen that flower. So that's part of why crop registration really comes into this. You know, I mean, there's a, a general idea of what crop steering is, and then there's how we actually apply it to every individual strain. And when we're looking at things like that, we want to say, okay, what was our irrigation strategy? That's a big hole I see is like, when I look back, I go, okay, I can count your shots on the graph, but what was your programming? Let's look at that and verify it and say, okay, with this particular strain, anytime we go and I can, I, I always use GMO as my classic example, just because it's pretty relevant right now. But that particular strain, most of the time when you start, even in bulking, like let's say you wait five weeks, go very conservative, switch over to your vegetative bulking strategy. If you bulk that particular strain too hard, a lot of times you'll get the same result, which is looser bud, trouble finishing. And that's just a way that that particular strain responds to several irrigation events a day. So, you know, tracking your strains and really using like, especially photographic tracking, you know, how did this respond? Like if I'm trying a new strain, I'm trying a maximum bulking strategy, take a picture a few times a week really track that bud development because the other side of this is by the time you've blown up that bud and made it loose, we're not going to be able to recover it during that run. You know, that's a, that's a lesson learned for next time. So, uh, you know, I, I know Jason does this. I do myself. We always try to push people towards a little bit more conservative bulking and generative steers and then working your way into maximizing. Yeah. And also to reiterate that, like there's different levels of how, hard we're steering in either direction you know it's not like a one or a zero as far as hey if we're either vegetative or, or generative it's like all right what's our environmental cues telling the plant and how hard are we pushing our irrigation cues one way or the other uh, and so there's chance that maybe you just need to lay off a, a few irrigations or shorten up that window just a tad bit during bulking as well and that's really going to be dependent on some of um, you know your substrate sizes and, and irrigation capacities yeah. And it's good to remember, this is really, you know, everything about crop steering is holistic. So we've got our irrigation strategies, but whenever you're reviewing your data, you know, whether basic crop registration or environmental data, you also want to look at some, in, any, any inconsistencies you have in your system and account for those. So if we look back and say, Hey, we're looking at all this data that we've grown this crop the same way this many times, but we made a fundamental change in our system. And now we can do you know, a big one for people is jumping from the possibility of running 12 irrigations a day to unlimited irrigations a day. Okay, right there, that's really where uh, your job as a cultivator is to gather the, all the data you need to make an informed choice next time. And I think that's where people really, really struggle because we all run a run. I mean, this is a production facility. It's more of a factory than a garden at that point. And we want it to be as simple as possible. But the reality is once we start to get into the boutique and specialty market, you know, that 40% of strains that's kind of finicky, that's when that crop registration really comes in. You know, you have to be diligent. And uh, I'll always say it, by the time you grow one strain 40 times, if you don't have documentation to go with that, it's really hard to pin down like, hey, I know, I remember this one time that weird thing happened. But very, it's very rare that I'll remember like every little detail around it that could be influencing it at that particular point. Yeah, you got to do your own, uh, set your own benchmarks, collect your data, collect your information, take those pictures, everybody. All right, Mandy, what's happening on YouTube? Yeah, you guys are submitting your questions. Um, so our first question is, 
What do you guys think about having mothers in three liter pots? Is this enough media? Uh, three liter for a mom. If you're not keeping the mom very long, then maybe there's a chance. Um, you know, one of the nice things about moms is we're usually always doing a vegetative irrigation. And so we are constantly pro providing fresh nutrients and oxygen um, throughout most of the um, most of the 18 hour period to keep those things in moms. Um, so, you know, if, if your moms, you're only getting maybe a round or two of cuts, you can probably get away with it. Um, try it once. And, you, you know, if you see that uh, your moms just aren't big enough to continue your supply, then definitely increase that. I mean, that's, that's much smaller than I would recommend for moms in most applications. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, traditionally I would have said that, but now that we're seeing bigger facilities pushing crops through faster, uh, what I like to call mom cropping is becoming more and more popular. And a lot of people are having success with a small media like that. But the reality is you're extending your total growth cycle basically back several months, starting with saying, okay, do I need 10 moms in a three liter pot or a six by six Hugo to get the number of cuts that I need? So is it, is it reasonable? Yes, but it depends on your particular facility space limitations and how fast you need to be turning out clones. Um, at the end of the day, going with newer moms that are younger and haven't been cut as many times is going to give you more consistent clones. But if you don't have the space to have 10 small moms for, you know, that particular crop, then we're looking at, you know, what'd you say, Jason, a six to a 10 gallon pot, maybe max, you know, make sure you, if you're going with cocoa, make sure you get a decent amount of perlite in there so you can push off that root rot for a while. You know, I always know we say perlite's a crutch, but not when it comes to a mom that you want to be low maintenance. Those are great notes. Um, yeah, some considerations to keep in mind and spacing is a big one. We did have another question over on YouTube. So Diane wants to know, so he's out, he, he really wants us to ask you Seth specifically, but let's talk about this. Do we care about water content or do we care about poor water EC in the pots? Um, water in the pot shouldn't matter, but I want to hear your opinion. Let's just talk about this. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about any of our soilless growing media, whether it be peat moss, cocoa, rock wool, um, well, we, you could grow in straight perlite if you want to. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is that poor water EC. We want to modulate that, maintain it, and we want to maintain our poor water pH. So when we're talking about water content, um, you know, like let's say you're in rock wool or, you know, straight cocoa, that plant has no... Not that plants have brains, but it can't, it, there's not much of a plant response between, you know, let's say 60% water content and 30% because the matrix potential in that soil, how hard it's holding onto the water is a negligible difference. So we do want to watch poor water EC, and that's actually how we're going to determine how far back, like I love using cocoa as an example, because we can dry back from say 65% all the way down to 20, 25. Um, I'm going to look at my poor water EC especially to when I get towards the end of bulking and ripening and determine like how far can I dry back without spiking that EC up too much. But also I want to be pulling my pH samples and making sure that if I'm, you know, if I'm in a low EC situation, I'm trying to get that up a little bit. I don't want to uh, completely limit runoff because eventually, you know, if everything's going well, I'll see my pH start to go down as that plant's pulling out available nutrients and changing that balance. So you do want to make sure you're paying attention to that poor water EC, but always pay attention to your pH and then decide like, hey, if I have to cut runoff for five days to get my EC up to where I want it, try it, go ahead, but make sure you pull a pH sample off of it as soon as you can at the end of that five days and evaluate where you're at because getting a higher EC is not worth it if we're driving a plant into a deficiency zone in terms of pH. Yeah, just to kind of jump into the the matrix potential that you were talking about, um, absolutely agree with you know what we're focused on there is that you see, but we have to remember our water content limitation ranges, and that's di different for different types of media. Uh, you know, when we're looking at rock wool, we do have a very linear matrix potential. So uh, matrix potential, you know, as we talked about, it's the amount of vacuum that the roots have to apply to the substrate. Um, that being said, you know, with something like rock wool, we usually never want to go down below 35%. If 
we can avoid it. You know, we're going to run into some hydrophobic properties, maybe a little bit of irrigation channeling. It's just going to be difficult to maintain our field capacity if we run it that far. So if we're pushing huge drybacks, we do have to recognize, hey, we want to get up to our field capacity with that. Uh, in cocoa, um, a little bit different. It's not quite as linear with its matrix potential, and it usually has an elbow, an inflection point in that matrix potential. And it's different for uh, different um, varieties of cocoa, depending on the chip and pith size. But usually that's we see that around 20, um, 25%. And so typically we'll want to try and stay a little bit above that if we can, just because that's when we're going to start to induce a little bit of uh, a harder time for the plant to pull water from that substrate. Yeah, I think this is a great time to really hammer it in. Like your, uh, your dry pack percentage is not going to be a finite number. I'm never going to be able to give you a strain and say, this is the exact dryback you want in this strain because that dryback uh, is a, it's a sum of all of your environmental factors going into it. We could be not getting a 20% dryback because we have a bigger pot for the same size plant. All right, in that situation, given the rest of the environment is fine, that's okay. As long as we're hitting a 10 to 15% dryback every day so we get proper uh, aeration in our media, then it's fine. We don't necessarily like just because one of your friends who grows says, Hey, I pushed a 40% dryback in my cocoa on this run and it turned out amazing. Doesn't mean that that's the solution for your specific grow unless everything else is exactly the same down to strain, the size you flipped it at, the time you took your cuts or the time you topped it, let's say, and then everything else. So I really want to highlight like, you know, these numbers are all relative and as far as, you know, what we're looking for, that 10 to 15% is our solid baseline to say that plant's getting good transpiration. You know, if we took that out to a five-gallon pot with a six-foot plant in it, you know, like let's talk about bulking there. And what'd you say, Jason? We'd be pretty, we're going to have to do some work to even put on four or five shots in the morning. They're going to have to be tiny. Then we're going to have to monitor that dry back and be like, yep, we got 10%. Cool. We're doing it good. We can't put on any more bulking. And that's where like some of these things change, you know, when, when we have different dynamics in terms of plant to pot size and what we can achieve in terms of VPD and temperature, those numbers are going to vary wildly. And your skill as a cultivator is being able to manage the difference in what you're seeing from crop to crop, season to season, media to media, and focusing on things like your pore water EC, your pH, and maintaining the rest of your environment to keep that plant in that comfort zone. You know, and it probably my biggest rule of thumb is if you wilted any plants trying to push back that big dryback, you probably pushed it a little too far. And most of the time that's just because, Hey, we, we got to six or seven weeks in and we grew a plant bigger than we've ever grown out of this little pot. So it's sucking up some water. And that's where, you know, a lot of growers will run to that limitation saying, Hey, I'm going from a one to a two gallon pot because I'm growing bigger plants and I need a bigger gas tank to drive this machine. Yeah. So our, our, Irrigation water, our fertigation can go to three places, runoff um, to the plant through transpiration and then through evaporation. So uh, since we're not going to use runoff in our, any of our dryback values, dryback is evaporation and transpiration. So uh, when we think about where that water is going, let's say we're in a one gallon cocoa pot. Well, if we're a 25% dryback, then we're a quarter of a gallon of water that's being lost to or used um, to evaporation and transpiration. Uh, now, if we're in a two gallon, if we're running the same size plant and it has the same amount of water usage, we're only going to see half that, so 12.5% dryback. Uh, it's going to be the same amount of water being used by the plant and evaporated. Yeah, and I, I do want to highlight something too. I'll pause it for you, Jason. Like, let's say we're in a greenhouse where we live in August. My VPD is pushing that 1.6 to 1.9. I'm actually losing water efficiency in the plant. So at that point, my, my transpiration is actually drawing more water through the plant than the plants, just so the plant can cool itself. Then it's able to actually fix in carbon and sugars inside the plant. So at that point, um, okay, if I'm in a greenhouse late summer, it's getting pretty hot. Hey, if I run a one gallon most of the time, maybe I run a two gallon during July and August and September just because I know I have this limitation and I have less water efficiency, therefore I need to have more water available to the plant to build the same amount of biomass than I would if we were able to keep our VPD in that efficiency range. Yeah, that actually brings up a really interesting topic that I, I didn't know about when I was um, during cultivation and, and, 
If you research water use efficiency, there's some really cool articles about this stuff in traditional horticulture. And um, it brings me into carbon dioxide. When we're actually optimized our carbon dioxide, we've uh, increased our water use efficiency. And sometimes we'll see the transpiration rates go down, even though the plant is growing faster. So, you know, anytime that we're talking about optimizing stomatal conductance, um, getting the most transpiration through those stomates as possible, uh, always you know, keep in mind that if you're modulating your CO2, that those numbers aren't going to be equivalent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's an issue I've actually been seeing lately is some people have been able to push way more biomass in the room than they have in the past is a, uh, hey, traditionally, you know, we start to enter ripening in, especially with this equipment, we can actually validate some of the things we already knew from uh, tribal knowledge with cannabis and also just traditional horticulture, which is when a plant starts to, to senesce, AKA enter its ripening stage, it's not going to take up as many nutrients. It's not going to take up ideally as much water. But one thing we've been seeing is like, hey, if I uh, if I just cut CO2 and nutrients but keep my light the same towards the end, I might get some adverse effects on plant health because the plant's not able to actually deal with all that light that I'm giving it. And so it's kind of a balancing game at that point. Do I, if I reduce my CO2? I know, I know that I need to reduce my light proportionally. If I reduce my light proportionally, do I get the same kind of growth in VPD? So it's always a juggling act, you know, like if we're talking about HPS bulbs, for instance, if I reduce my CO2 at the end, but I need to keep, you know, a, a lot of growers right now, especially if you have a couple year old build out that was planned around HPS, you're, you're planning on having that radiant heat in the room to help you deal with some of that humidity. Well, if I cut my lights to 60% for the last two weeks and cut CO2 down to like 30%, I'm limiting the plant in a few different ways and also potentially introducing that potential for mold because my systems achieves the VPD I want when I have that radiant heat in the room. So it's, it's a lot of balancing to do. And sometimes uh, in my experience, it's a little easier to run closer to full throttle and give the plant everything you think it needs then try to run by the bare minimum. And that's something that we're allowed to do in cannabis that I think is pretty rad because, uh, you know, before I ever got into cannabis, I was never allowed to push it on the input side of things. You know, it was always, uh, how can we get by with the least amount? And we're, we're totally blowing that out of the water when we're looking for good quality cannabis. That's great advice and great question, Diane. Um, Iron Armor wrote in, hi, Iron Armor. What are your thoughts on using bloom nutrients instead of veg nutrients for cloning and root in after transplant and even using the bloom nutrients during a whole two week veg? I was under the impression that P and K from the bloom nutrients help stimulate root growth. I'm thinking back on the days when I was using the Lucas formula, if you guys are familiar with that. I remember that from way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, P and K can help root growth for sure. Um, typically though, most of your, your basic veg formulations are going to be great. And one thing to remember, like calcium nitrate, when we put that in, we got CA2 positive and NO3. That's going to break down. Nitrate goes into the plant and nitrate actually stimulates a similar reaction in the plant as auxin does. And auxin is our primary rooting hormone that's produced in the plant. So, you know, running, yeah, like a 1.0 to a 1.5 EC, uh, cloning solution with a decent amount of calmag and it's going to give you pretty good root formation. Um, the roots, what they I mean, the big thing to remember here is like, anytime we're talking about oxen or rooting hormone, there's two places that that's produced and expressed in the plant. So that's either produced at your far distal meristems, you know, the growing points of each branch and it moves downward, or we can stimulate oxen production by actually damaging a node, an axial node, which is what we do when we're cloning, if you're doing it correctly. That's why we're cutting right up next to that node actually damaging that axial meristem because that's going to produce a lot of auxin, which causes callusing and root formation. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I believe that is it for over on YouTube for now. So I will pass it back to you, Keisha. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Yeah. If y'all are joining us late because it is April 20th, we totally understand, but we are talking all about crop steering and cultivation today. We want to hear your questions. All right. Elvis wrote in seeking some advice. 
Hi, guys. I was wondering if you could advise me on growing in cocoa. I am growing in two-gallon cloth pots with two drip feeds in each pot. I need to know what pH, WC, and EC I need to be at from every stage of growing. If you have any advice, it would be really appreciated. Well, I'm pretty sure we can't give him those stats, but what, what advice would we want to give Elvis? It sounds like he's kind of just getting started and uh, doing some crop steering for the first time. So what do you recommend? So easiest one there is pH because we're usually keeping it pretty consistent. We might let it rise up towards the end of harvest, but we'll be, we'll be at 5.8 for most cocos. Um, Which by the way, means 5.6 to 5.9 feed in cocoa. Usually I'm just dumping it in at 5.9 and keeping that consistent. Uh, the rest of those numbers can be either found in our, our cultivation in, intro guide or any of the office hours that we've brought up crop stream um, about obviously their dynamic ranges. So. Um, I think we've gone over all of them probably three or four times in the show here. I'll give you a quick one, four to 12, <laughs> five to nine. And we'll go back to about four to 19 <laughs> when you're ripening. Um, the biggest thing about those ranges is again, crop registration and document how your plants are responding. And then when we're talking EC, if you're starting out at home, buy a Solus and take your measurements before you water after your P1. And then towards the end of the day with your dry back, that way you have an idea of what we're getting throughout the day, how far it's drying back, what the EC response was and where we come in at the highest point, which should be just before watering your P1. But just remember, like Jason was saying, this EC especially is dynamic. So start out with, uh, you know, this is going to sound old school, but watch your pH and your runoff, maintain that in your root zone. And then once you can manage pH all the way through, then you're ready to start stacking a little. Because that's, that's what we run into all the time. Like, hey, I want to stack my pH, or I want to stack my EC up. Yeah, like, like we said earlier in this episode, again, a week later, we're down at a 4.9 or a 5.1 pH. Like, okay, well, you can't stack if that's the case. And then we're looking at, you know, basically fixing that problem earlier on by bringing those plants into stretch with an appropriate amount of EC in the root zone. Yeah, you know, I've, I've found that, for helping avoid pH problems, a lot of times we just need to make sure there's enough food getting fed to the plants. Um, so first we be making sure we're checking water quality and that's not affecting the nutrient balance that we're feeding when we do mix up some fertilizer. Um, but from there, it seems like most of the time that I've run into clients with pH problems, it just comes down to underfeeding. Yep. Generally speaking. And then, you know, when you're, when we're dealing with pH problems, remember we're resetting that positive negative balance of ions. And if the plant's pulling out those negative ions and we're leaving positive, the only way we can really reset that is by pushing enough, enough ions back in. And since our solution that we're pushing in has a little bit of both, we have to, you know, maintain pushing enough runoff to actually reset that. So that's why it's, it gets to be a delicate balance. And once things are not going optimally, like let's say we just can't get that pH to stack, we're stuck between a 2.5 and a 3.5. We see EC, yep. By week, you know, by the time we hit week three or four, that's your range. You know, it, it'll stack up a little bit, but there's no point in saying, oh, I've been at this point for three weeks. Now I just need to shoot it up and raise it. Like we're, we're spending this whole plant's life adapting it to a certain set of conditions. And we've got to work within the parameters that we end up setting for ourselves, whether intentional or not. Fantastic. Elvis. Good luck out there. Keep us posted. All right, Mandy, sending it over to you for YouTube. Awesome. Thank you, Keisha. Calicori Main wrote in. Hey, how's it going, guys? Um, some questions for the boys this week. Is there a dry is the dryback duration or the dryback percentage the cue for generative and veg steering for irrigation indoors? What tells the plant to switch to bulk or ripen, et cetera? So I usually go by dryback duration because your dryback percentage is a target that we're trying to achieve, but that's going to be based on uh, substrate size, uh, how fast those plants are actually growing, you know, is the environment optimized for them to be grown as fast as possible? How old are they? What, what's the strain like, uh, you know, I've seen some strains that are uh, heavy eaters that aren't heavy drinkers, uh, et cetera. So usually that's what I'm looking at. And typically, you know, that's also kind of just how we're getting to sending the cue to the plant and, and for, for most of what the plant's feeling, osmotic potential, um, decreasing 
the osmotic potential between the substrate and the plant is kind of what we're going for as far as inducing those uh, reproductive cues in the, the plant um, hormones. Yeah, typically with that watering frequency change, we're not, um, we're pushing a response for the plant that's totally hormonal. So if the plant is in a hormonal state where that response is not going to be what we want, then that's why we're running a certain strategy. So, you know, we'll go back to you're ending your generative strategy when stretch is done. So, you know, to answer the question bluntly, it is that time duration, because when we open up that irrigation window, we're just oxygenating that root zone over and over and over. And that really the best way to prove this for yourself, I've said it a bunch of times, go get yourself a bubble bucket or an arrow garden and uh, throw an air stone in there. So you get twice as much air in the, in the water as you would with the factory little air bubbler and you'll see a lot more growth. And that's what we're working on here is that root respiration. You know, if the roots don't have fresh oxygen, they can't work hard at moving oxygen up. And then we kind of hit a double time with that osmotic pressure and we're slowing down the actual cellular not cellular growth because we want those cells to divide and make more cells, but we're slowing down that stretching. So what happens is uh, after I add that air stone and I put uh, some hyperchlorous acid or hydrogen peroxide <laughs> is getting better. Yeah. And that, and that's where we see, you know, like uh, classically hydroponics when we're talking about vegetable production, especially like, you know, greens production salad. That's where a lot of air in that media really produces that really lush, productive, dark green growth. And that's just due to the hormonal condition created in the plant when we're oxygenating the root zone to that level. Oh, I had no idea. That was a great rundown, guys. Um, Calicori Maine came, came back with the second question. Also, does a temperature differential only contribute to purple color changes, or does it tell the plant to change between bulk and ripen, et cetera? Lots of interest in the signaling cues for these phases. Yeah, it's good old night-day temperature differential. So obviously, uh, anthocyanin production, uh, like you stated there, is one of the, the nice factors. Lower temperatures usually do. Um, induce somewhat more generative response. Uh, it's cueing the plant that it needs to be reproductive. That uh, you know it, it's entering into uh, a, a season or phase likely that uh, it can't survive through. Um, that being said, you know my favorite is to keep those daytime temps still pretty warm, and then and drop the or increase the um, differential. So drop the nighttime temps a little bit more and a little bit more throughout the cycle, so that we can keep the, the metabolism up during the day, but then also send some of those cues to the plant. Yeah. I mean, a good way to look at it is we're not trying to, uh, these plants have spent millions of years evolving in a natural environment, right? We're not trying to totally buck that natural environment at every stage in the process. We're trying to give it the best possible representation of what that could be. And part of that is we get accelerated plant metabolism at, let's say 80 to 82 degrees. That's 80 to 85. Generally, that's where we get the best plant metabolism across most species. When we drop that for part of the day, we are slowing it down. And the end result is just like Jason said, we're, the plant doesn't interpret it as we're giving it a cue so much is that's what naturally happens at the end of summer. So we're really built, you know, we're, we're rolling along with that life cycle. That's why, you know, if people say, Hey, should I dim my lights a bunch of the, you know, towards the end of the run? It's like, well, when's your plant, when would your plant finish outside? Early October is the sun less bright the first week of October. Yeah, not really, but it's colder at night and also the earth's tilted farther away. So our spectrum might need to be a little different, but typically the sun doesn't dip down below, you know, a thousand PPFD in September, unless it's really cloudy out. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, we got a lot of questions uh, submitted over on YouTube. So I'm going to start going through those. Diane wants to know, I think this is pretty interesting too. What would happen if I grow the whole run generative steering instead of the veg and gin? Is that the best way? Uh, is that the best way to grow quality? Uh, you know, it, the question is, how did you used to see your plants when you were hand watering every day? Um, that's a great example of uh, generative steering throughout the entire cycle. Uh, you know, when we were just getting in there, uh, irrigating in the morning or, or just after lights on and, and letting those plants dry back all day. Um, that's a, pretty generative cue. Um, you know, we really do generative to induce, uh, bud growth so that we can get quality so that we can get those plants to, to ripen up as fast as possible or get them you know, through the life cycle stages as quickly as possible. Um, sometimes you just need to run generative a little bit longer to make sure that plant does 
get into that, uh, that high quality, high volume range? Yeah. I mean, the simple answer is yes. If we go back to a five gallon pot, giving it some expensive nutrients and watering it super generatively, we ended up with a plant that was smaller than we get out of a one or a two gallon pot now. But, you know, back to the homegrown's the best thing. If we, you know, go back 10 years, 15 years in the medical market, um, that's why is because actually that little bit of minimal maintenance going in and giving it a watering only when it needs it and then letting it be quite a bit of the time actually does produce really good quality. But if we're talking about five gallons of media per plant and putting out a plant that's, you know, two thirds to half the size of what we're doing now, that's not as economically viable. So where crop steering bridges that gap is saying, how do we optimize the plant at different morphological stages? So we can target the bud set, we can target the bud size, and we can target quality. There we go. We love that. Dr. J303 wants to know, is there a way to promote more terps with crop steering? Do we have any advice for improving terp profiles with crop steering? I, you know, it kind of goes back into that last question, last question that we were talking about. Um, you know, as, as far as getting the high quality, uh, you know, reducing that osmotic potential, um, inducing the right hormone responses in the plant should get you uh, as close to optimizing terpene profile as possible. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, a big part of it I've noticed is being able to ripen. So if you've got a five foot plant and a six by six by six Hugo, it's going to be tough to push a generative steering strategy. So you've already thrown that tool out of your toolbox. Um, the next one that really equates to that is being able to run a little bit lower temperatures. So being in that like 73 to 75 daytime, mid sixties nighttime. And really what that has more to do with is volatility of terpenes, right? So in a hotter environment, more of those terpenes gas off, less of it makes it into your jar. Um, so those are two things you can really do to optimize that. And then, you know, honestly, one of the next ones gets into, uh, we call a chemotype in cannabis where it's like, Hey, I'm growing this strain with this steering strategy under these conditions. And I'm harvesting this day because the day you harvest is going to affect the ratio of what terpenes you have, the contents or the, uh, what actually terpenes you have in the plant, because different plants will have a different terpene expression at different points in their maturity. And then the end date is like, do I want this to be the same every time? Okay. I need to replicate all of these variables right down to the harvest day to get my ratio of THCA to THC, the amount of like, let's say I'm looking for THCV. And then if I'm looking for any kind of special terps, I got to target that day because now we're playing a game of not only, you know, producing all these trichomes, but optimizing our harvest conditions and time for, to minimize the terp volatility. And then also getting that's, you know, right, right after that is where post-production gets in, you know, a bunch of us, especially if you've grown at home, have grown some amazing herb that turned out kind of like hay when you didn't cure it quite correctly. And that's a big part of that is uh, locking in some moisture and gassing off terps at the wrong time. So, you know, when we're talking about uh, flavor profile and overall quality, that post-production is just as important as our actual production run as well. I've seen a lot of amazing herb get turned into, uh, I want to use a different word, but mids. Um, just because they were, it wasn't handled properly between, you know, cut and making it to the final packaging. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things that I love to do is take a picture right there towards the end of harvest, you know, get some, um, the USB microscope. If you don't have one yet, um, throw your trichomes under there. Uh, yeah. what, what color of Amber and how much of that, um, uh, trichome count do we want in that Amber to perfect the terpene profile that we're getting off of that strain? Yeah, I think Mike, you nailed it there. Keep keep checking that and look for the more indicators. Even if I'm not here telling you and you say, hey, I've got this strain that like, I know if I harvest it with 20% still white pistols on it, it's different than if I let it go another four or five days. Register those differences and really start logging it and then start attaching some of your post-production data in terms of your testing and everything else and looking that at that in relation to some of the variables you're looking at inside the grove as well. But generally, awesome. yeah, low temp generative steering is what's going to help you with the terps. And then also uh, one thing I've noticed is having the ability, especially on some strains to pull back that late flower nitrogen, that's going to push more vegetative growth because that's just going to encourage the plant to produce more immature, immature trichomes, which don't have the terpene profile we want. So 
Also, you know, if you're getting into that boutique market, start learning as much as you can about plant nutrition, how you can optimize that in your own feed. Because it's, you know, we talk about nitrate quite a bit here. That's not the only thing that will influence this late. I mean, you've got a lot of micros at play. And then, you know, balancing what you can actually do about it. You know, kind of an interesting um, topic that uh, I got to watch a seminar on last year, and that was um, uh, a pest response. And it, they actually had did some tests where they could uh, get a little bit higher propene, pro, or terpene profile uh, when, when they had induced some, uh, some pest simulation. So kind of something might be fun to, to dig into and, and take a look as that plant develops its natural defenses. So it's kind of tricking the plant into thinking there's a predator and the terpene production responds accordingly. Yep. Yeah. And there's, there's some chemicals that they can, can use to induce that as well. Probably not what we can be using in uh, production right now, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's things like, like pruning are, are going to also do the same, same response. Wow. That's super interesting. I did not know that. Um, great questions coming in over on YouTube. I'm going to keep going down our list. Chuck Mangione. Um, that's an awesome joke. If that's not the real Chuck Mangione, um, that's a great reference to King of the Hill. Hey guys, love the channel. The information you guys give is gold. I'm a new grower and was wondering when crop steering going from generative to vegetative back to generative, do you go from higher VPD back to lower VPD? and back to higher VPD, or is it that you slowly ramp up the VPD and only worry about irrigation? That's his first question. Slowly ramp. Um, and it comes down to that uh, vegetative generative balance that we do. Uh, you know, so when we're in stacking in the beginning, our you know, VPDs that say one to 1.2 are gonna be a little bit more vegetative leaning. Um, our irrigation would put pushing pretty hard on, on generative. So that's kind of some of the balance that we're creating for the plant. And then uh, through vegetative bulking, usually would be at that one, two to one, four. Um, and then for ripening, uh, typically if you don't have issues with mold or mildew, you can stay at that one, two to one, four. If you have some susceptibility to, um, those molds, mildews, bacteria growth, then it's good to keep it up, up at that, uh, higher in, in higher end of that range there at one, four. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think, um, you know, just to tag onto that one important thing to realize, and that's. Part of why VPD is actually so much more important than looking at your RH um, is with VPD, we're not only looking at like how does this uh, the moisture content, content and pressure potential in the air affect transpiration in the plant, but we're also looking at how it affects water availability to things like molds and bacteria. So for instance, you know, if I have a environment that's over 1.0 VPD directly surrounding this mold spore, it's probably not going to be able to access water and actually grow. If that spore is in, you know, whether it's on a cannabis plant or a paper towel, if it, you know, is 0.6 VPD for any amount of time, that spore can actually germinate and grow. And once that spore germinates, that organism does have a little bit of action to be able to regulate its immediate environment somewhat. So that's what we're looking for is trying to reduce the availability of water, especially in late flower to things like pests and disease. And another thing on there as well is keeping the VPD ideal helps us produce the healthiest plant, which is also going to be more resistant to uh, any of our concerns there. Oh, absolutely. Your first, be your first best IPM is having healthy plants. For sure. Cleanliness and healthiness, just like us. If you live in a clean house and you take care of yourself, you don't get sick as much. Good rules to live by. Awesome. Um, we have more questions coming in, but I did want to get to some a poll that we posted earlier today. So we asked... What, what's the best snack for the munchies? And our answers were Doritos, Cheetos, Funyuns, and rolled gold pretzels. Go ahead, Seth. <laughs> Sorry, Doritos won at 38%, followed up by a tie with Cheetos and rolled gold pretzels at 25%, and then Funyuns at 12%. Aw, not a lot of love for Funyuns. Uh, yeah, what's y'all's favorite munchie out there? I do Doritos are are pretty great. Um, like the, the regular cheese or I'm what do you, cool, I'm a cool ranch person. However, my number one munchie is cashews, salty cashews. That's healthy. Have you guys yeah. heard about the dots pretzels yet? Since we're on that subject. 
No. Jason knows. It's the MSG. Oh you can't stop. No, no. I got some honey mustard ones last weekend. That was brutal. Oh, yeah. Those gone. are delicious. Uh-oh. I know what I'm doing later. Dots Mike comes wrote peanut bags. butter and a little local honey. Yum. <laughs> Just like off the spoon. Are you putting that on anything? It comes on there. They, they, they cook it in with the MSG, I'm pretty sure. All the goodness. <laughs> Yeah, MSG stands for magic something. I don't know. Uh, I actually just like those munchy snacks. I think that it was just created Ooh, for. It was just perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah, it goes right one. off the spoon. Gets right to the point. Sorry, just wanted to clarify that. I used to be all about the ice cream, um, but then sometimes I went yeah. over the top and had a bad experience. So you just got to be got to be careful when you're doing that one. We can't you know, do that too much these days. I found okay, out yeah. about avocado based ice cream. All right. It's been changed by world. Right. Oh, it's I'm good. looking into that. It's good. You should try it. I love that. John, give us your favorite munchie. Can you hear us? Is he frozen? Okay. Nope. Can you hear me? I got you. I got to go with Muddy Buddies. That yeah, sounds good. I can't stop eating them. I'm Is glad it, the bag. It's bags. chocolate? Yeah, they're checks with chocolate and then powdered sugar and a lot mm. of it. Salty oh, sweet. So- Oh my yeah. god. Sometimes I, I got a hint of peanut butter in there. I love that. Yeah. You guys, what I'm gonna do is... It's clearly 420. Sorry, keep going, keep going. Can you can you uh, make those, John? Because I've tried and it it just turned out like clumps of chocolate. Try it. Well, they're still good. I mean, you know, just practice makes perfect, just like anything we talk about on here. Um, yeah, happy 420. Um trying to decide how to talk about Arroyo hardware because a lot of our people a lot of our audience are are not using it they're home growers or or just professionals who haven't gotten to that point yet but we've been going through a firmware update and it requires us to replace the the gateway and so i had to do that at my house and i turns out i had jason look it up i have the first uh gateway of this version and it looks like jason hand carved this out of mahogany so it's very special i just wanted classic. to share that classic, classic yep. so again abby 420 and it's about all i got for today but thanks a lot awesome. john thank you so much appreciate that tip yeah and actually our clients out there if you've never seen john before but to have talked to him that is who are you talking to? So love having our teammates on here. Okay. I think we still got more action on YouTube, right, Mandy? Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to speed it up. Okay. Chuck had another question. So I was also wondering, can you crop steer in soil as if you do in cocoa or rock wool? I was wondering because in soil, the drybacks usually take longer. And I was worried about root rot, um, trying to crop steer in soil. I usually water until dry to prevent root rot. Thanks guys. Quick answer. Yes. Um, why you're seeing that usually the drybacks take longer or you're getting less dryback in that same duration. Um, matrix potential, you know, the substrate, the soil itself is hanging on to that water. So that, you know, that plant might even be feeling a, a drought stressor if we're getting too low, depending on the composition of that substrate. That being said, optimizing your substrate size is going to be the absolute requirement here to do a good job with crop steering in that soil. Um, and so, you know, if, if it is taking too long, we need to go in a smaller substrate and, and then go by those same irrigation rules. Yeah. I think a good way to look at this, if you're saying like, uh, yeah, Mikey, you know, the, the soil mix, um, that number one, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're, uh, growing plants in a pot, you're not using soil. If everything you're putting in a pot is a soilless mix at some point. So, you know, it's when we're talking about uh, everything except osmotic pressure, which is a lot tougher to manage in, let's say, an organic soil situation. Um, otherwise, what we're talking about here just has to do with soil physics. And, you know, other than matrix potential, like I'm guessing in your soilless mix that you're running, you probably don't have things like a high clay concentration, a high sand concentration. Usually we look at soil physics and the matrix potential and how that affects plant uptake. We're dealing with different soil particle sizes and then charge in between those different particles and the water itself. Uh, no one sells a mix in horticulture that has those problems. And if they did, it wouldn't last very long on the market. So basically all your crop steering cues are going to be the same. And uh, the only difference would be like 
pot size, our dry back is taken forever because the pot's really big compared to the plant, right back to that three and a half to five gallon pot with a three and a half to four foot tall plant in it. There's just not as much leaf leaf surface area to transpire that much water out of it. So you can go with a smaller pot and then, you know, from there decide like, okay, I have soil, but am I feeding it nutrients? Okay. If I am, I just need to get some monitoring equipment in there to see what the EC in the root zone actually is. Um, if you're going full organic, then we're looking at how long it takes different components to break down and become bioavailable. That's going to be tougher to capture with a sensor because we're looking at just that millimeter around the root surface, the rhizosphere. And that is where, you know, that organic art comes in. And usually I recommend if someone's going to grow organic, you know, things like compost teas, uh, and administering and trying to administering them in an inside room and trying to monitor your EC that way is going to be very, very tough at a commercial scale. So you might want to look at like, okay, what's my production process and how can I make it easier? So for a lot of organic producers or soil growers, actually going back to a bed type strategy and then adjusting plant count and size to accommodate your steering strategy is probably the way to go to get production there. I like how you say uh, the organic art. Um, it is. Well, it's science. It's just kind of more complicated than most of us can deal with. So. Well, exactly. That's, that's where, that's why I say art. It's just, it's very difficult and you're going to do a lot of calculations. You're going to have trial and error. And when we get to organics, generally a bigger media size is going to give us more buffer room. So we're looking at a little bit different crop steering strategy and how to optimize the rest of our production cycle around that. And I, you know, I think probably for me, one of the biggest challenges in know, doing cannabis in an organic substrate is, uh, knowing what my composition is round after round, after round, after round, you know, we're, we're growing plants so fast through here that the stability of that soil through that organic breakdown, um, the creation of those nutrients through the microbes and and bacteria in the substrate in the soil, it, uh, it's a, it's a tricky thing to rebalance your amendments so that the next cycle can be uh, as equivalent as possible based on the timeline there. Oh, absolutely. And then if you, you know, if that's your sole calling to grow organic cannabis, um, build your business model around it. Realize that, hey, most of these organic methods, you know, uh, number one, are not generally as productive per, you know, dollar input as some of our synthetic fertilizers are going to be. Number two, you're going to have a totally different production cycle because you're probably not going to be in one gallon pots if you want to have a good time. And then number three, you're going to deal with, just like Jason was saying, these crop to crop differences in your soil if you're planting back into it. So, you know, a a production system like that has its place, but generally speaking, that's going to be where we come in from, you know, a traditional agricultural side saying, how cheap can I do this? How can I do it with the fewest people and the minimal amount of labor? And then build your farm around that. If you buy, uh, quote unquote Ferrari, <laughs> like we always talk about, you know, there's a lot of people out there owning Ferraris, Ferraris driving them like minivans. Uh, you, you don't even want that kind of comparison in this organic talk here. We skip the Ferrari, go get an international or a John Deere. You know, that's kind of where we're at with that style of production, but it, it has a place. If you can pull off, you know, let's say four people can pull off the same amount of canopy space as it would take 20 people to do in a high intensity indoor operation. And your target is not necessarily, uh, you've diversified your business. You're like, Hey, we've got some sun grown flour that we sell. We've got a lot of oil that we make, you know, we've diversified. It's, it's totally doable, but you've got to look at your business holistically and make sure that you've taken every step along the way to optimize that production practice. And really, if you want to look into that hard, look at some of the organic vegetable producers out there, you know, uh, they're not always the most profitable, but there are quite a few businesses out there that have been in business a long time producing organic vegetables, and that's not by accident. So you're saying I might not have a good idea when I'm white labeling my organic product? Yeah, no. Get that premium for it, <laughs> you know? I mean, really. And you know, maybe look at it. Like, what is the best application of this product? I personally know people in the space that are looking at growing you know, pretty much fully organically or fully organic. And they're going all to oil just because that's the most practical business decision for them. And by oil, usually these days, like they're trying to hit that rosin market and get a little bit more of that boutique premium. But, you know, you got to have an open mind, be adaptable and analyze the market for what it is, not what you hope it's going to be. You know, I think that 
if you haven't, if you've been in cannabis and you haven't taken that away over the last five to 10 years, you're, you're kind of missing something because I don't think anyone's predicted like, Hey, my vision of the market's exactly what happened. That's certainly not my case. <laughs> and I know I'm not unique in that. Mikey dropped here in the chat. These cloth cocoa, uh, Cloth bag cocoa cubes have been fantastic for indoor production. Three to four harvests, set of transplants, and room loads a week requires uniformity. That's yep. great. Thanks, y'all. Um, all right. I think we have time for a couple more questions from YouTube. Diane wants to know, what do you guys suggest if we see mold during the harvest, and how do we prevent it from spreading in the dry rooms? Uh, I mean, the best thing to do is something different next round. I'll, I'll just run it off real quick here. Raise your VPD in the last two weeks. Make sure you don't have any lights off swings where you're hitting below a 0.1.0 or below 1.0 for any amount of time overnight. So what that might mean for a lot of people is like, Hey, I can only push 69 degrees overnight, not 65. Look for little things like that. Um, if you're flushing, stop killing your plant early and encouraging it to mold. Manage your EC a little better. And then, uh, well, number three, if you know you have mold, after you've harvested a particular strain for a certain time, you should be able to walk through and look for those telltale signs. You shouldn't have to break it open and look at every nug. You see a curled leaf coming out. You know that strain, that means mold. Go up there, cut it and bag it right away. Get that out, you know, three to five days minimum before harvest so that stem can dry up a little bit and not have a leaking sap point to mold in the dry room. And then finally, I'm sure you're cleaning your dry room, Diane, but maybe not as well as what would be ideal. You know, I've found a lot of situations in farms where the dry room was kind of the last thought when putting together this big cultivation facility and uh, hygiene in the dry room isn't always quite as nice as we'd like it to be. And once we chop all those plants down, if we can't, if that dry room stays too humid or if it already has mold presence in it, we've got plants that we just hacked down and are actively dying, they're ready to mold. And then another one too, is if you're doing a, you know, a pre-harvest strip, don't do that just the day before harvest, give it a few days, use some scissors, and then don't go super aggressively. If you've got the base of a bud and you're ripping a leaf off of it and you actually leave a little open wound with a sap drip in it, and then chop that plant the next day and hang it, You'll go back and find mold on the buds where you pulled the leaf and actually scarred the base of where that bud attaches to the stem. That's an entrance point for mold and disease. So when you're doing that strip, balance it. Hey, I know if I wound this plant, get a lot of sap going, I have entry points for mold infection. If I don't, then I don't, but maybe now I have to deal with that extra biomass in my dry room. So either I need to do that defoliation a little earlier or maybe upgrade the dry room so it can handle that extra amount of biomass. Sounds like it's always a balance. Thanks for that. Um, Harv had a question. I'm trying to understand generative growth. I lengthen the dry back to limit stretch. Uh, do I now stay with that fertigation schedule to the end of the run to promote bulking? Uh, I, no, so usually for when we're running you know, generative will be anywhere from the first two to four weeks in flower. Um, and that's when you have those longer dryback windows. You know, typically we're talking about, you know, 20 to 23 hours of a dryback window. Um, and when we want to go into bulking, we're going to switch that up to vegetative. Just like Seth was saying earlier, getting lots more irrigations. We're going to provide uh, a growth response to the plant with that fresh oxygen, those, those fresh nutrients. And, um, so having you know a good frequency of irrigations for a much longer period is going to cut our dry back window, um, you know, down to something like sixteen hours or uh, or something like that. And so that's uh, going to be a different irrigation schedule for vegetative bulking versus generative stacking. Yeah, when I first started experimenting with some of this stuff, it it's, was a first for me a necessity of switching up my pot size. <laughs> but what really hit home was like, wow, if I water a plant just in the morning. I get this shorter growth. If I stretch that out to, you know, for me, it started with six and then eight and then 12 waterings throughout the day as we were pushing bigger plants and smaller pots. Now I'm seeing more and more of this vigorous growth response in plant height. So basically a good way to think about it, if you really want to dumb it down, water just in the morning for generative and for vegetative, little shots all day. That's, that's probably the awesome. easiest way to start and see that response right in front of your face. 
Here we go. We'll have a quick rundown. Um, those are great questions everyone submitted over on YouTube. I think that we are all out of time. So I am going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Awesome, Mandy. Thank you, everybody who submitted questions today for our 420 episode. Seth and Jason, before we wrap it up today, any words to, to wish everybody uh, to say to everybody on this high holiday? Happy 420. Have fun. Be safe. Smoke lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out there and celebrate. I mean, it's it's uh, not even 420 yet on the West Coast, so we'll just get the the wave of smoke rolling across the country, you know? <laughs> That's it. Yes. For those of us who are fortunate enough to have access to this amazing plant, please celebrate it, honor it. Let's get the prisoners out of prison. Let's just keep this movement going. And uh, Jason and Seth, thank you so much for another great session. Mandy, thank you for co-moderating with me. Producer Chris, Thank you for the magic behind the scenes. And I'm just going to thank myself for growing this goodness, which I will be enjoying later. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, so to learn more about Arroya, be sure to check out our demos. You can go ahead and sign up for a demo. One of our experts will walk you through all the ways uh, Arroya can help improve your cultivation production process. Thank you, everybody who joined us for today's episode of Arroya Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers is from the experts is to join us live. Um, if there's a topic you'd like covered in a future session, feel free to post questions anytime via the Arroya app. Feel free to drop them in the chat, send us an email at support.arroya at metergroup.com or send us an Instagram DM or on, we are actually on all the socials, LinkedIn, Social Club. And don't forget on Instagram, we have a contest going right now. So you're going to want to enter that for some Arroya merch. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Thanks so much, everybody. And happy 420 again. See you next time. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.